Do you want to say something like random and then do like the music? Princess can smell a banana hammock. <laughs> okay. <laughs> dark history podcast which is really just a fancy way of saying whatever pops into our head <laughs> yeah really our first episodes on typhoid mary and i really thought that i was being original you know because i was like oh epidemic typhoid typhoid mary but then when i started doing all of this research i was How like did you think you were being original <laughs> we're know. in the middle of a pandemic i just thought it was being original and then i turned out like Everybody and their 12 cousins decided to do Typhoid Mary around well, the same time. As a podcast or as, like, it's a podcast, YouTube. a YouTube video, and all of this other stuff. I really well, have to say, at least there was a lot of information out there. I really have to shout it out to this one girl because I started doing my research and then went, I don't have that, I don't have that, I don't have that. I mean, this girl was... So basically, she kind of was like, here, I did all of this, and then you're like, where do you find that source? And then you're like, oh, I'm finding all your sources, and you, like, helped me immensely. Yes, so she did. She helped me immensely. So you guys can just, like, click off of this video and go... (laughs) And go click on her video. And we're a podcast, not a video. Whatever. And her (laughs) name is Stephanie Harlow, and her video was Typhoid Mary, Villain or Victim. So definitely go check that out, because she was amazing. Okay? Yeah, it was on a YouTube video. It was a YouTube video. She did a YouTube documentary. Jeez, I wonder if it was YouTube. (laughs) It was YouTube. (laughs) Anyway, so there you go. Kind of feel weird starting now after I just told everybody to, like, click off, but here we go. I want to set the stage, and in order to set the stage, or whatever we're going to call this... um, Set the scene. Set the scene, yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk about two things, because this is the 1900s, and I had to figure out where... What we knew of typhoid, which really, in the 1900s, wasn't that much. It, it was difficult to determine the cause of plagues and infection diseases in early history. I mean, like, they were just barely discovering germs. Yeah. I mean, they don't even have a vaccine until 1911. During this time, there is not a vaccine created until Mary is... Well, I don't want to give it away, but it's not created yet. A doctor by the name of William Budd... Great um, name. I know, right, bud? bud. With two D's. Um, hey, Dr. Buddy. <laughs> he um, did a... 
Yes, with two Ds. He did a typhoid. He did a typhoid outbreak. Well, during a typhoid outbreak. I hope he didn't do a typhoid outbreak. <laughs> then this would be the story of typhoid bud. In a local English village in 1838, he realized that typhoid started in the intestines of the sick. Then they became present in their waist. So their poop. Yeah. Basically. Or the pee. Yeah. Oh, or the pee. Oh. And could be transmitted to the healthy. Wait, wait, wait. And this woman was a cook? You're oh, jumping boy. ahead too far. You're jumping ahead too far. I'm I'm Spoilers. back. I'm back in the 1838. Okay, we're like a little bit before all of that. But it could be transmitted, transmitted, transmitted to the healthy through the consumption of contaminated water. Because of this, he pushed for disinfection by keeping our water and our waste separate. So bear in mind, that is literally all they knew in the 1900s was, well, 1800s, and also the 1900s, was to keep your water and your waste separated or else you get sick. Back then, you didn't keep your water and waste separated in, like, the poor neighborhoods. So this was really just kind of like a fix for... The rich neighborhoods, because they could have their own, like, wells and their own water supply. Right. Like, the the poor were either getting it from, like, the river or, like, pumps or something. And I don't think that those things were really very sanitary. No, they really were not very sanitary. So, the second topic... See, I just breezed right on through. Good job. The second topic is the Great Famine. I mean... You're going to be done with this by ten minutes in. (laughs) You think? No. No. (laughs) Uh, The Great Famine was... Which is sometimes referred to in America as the Irish Potato Famine. Or we just call it the Potato Famine. I'm unsure. Was a period of disease in Ireland in... 1845 to 1849. That's what caused a lot of the Irish to immigrate, correct? Jumping ahead of me again, but yes. Where one million people died and one million more immigrated. So there you go. That's Um, a lot of people. I know. It was a lot of people. And the proximate cause of the famine was a potato blight. And I had to look up blight because I was like, yeah, I've heard potato blight, but I never know what a potato blight it's is. It's basically a diseased potato. It, it's a fungus that destroys the crops. It's yeah, a fungus. It's basically a diseased potato. Yeah, but I didn't know what kind of disease. So I was like, oh, it's a fungus. fungus. <laughs> oh, kind of like the um, zombie cicadas. That That's a fungus that controls them and it's the whole thing. Is that a thing going on now? That is a thing going on now. 2020 is weird. <laughs> I know, right? They, <laughs> uh, they do this little mating dance that <laughs> like makes them, they're like all males, but it makes another male come and then it infects another because they think it's a female. Well, it's a whole thing. Anyway, go on. I'm sorry. Back to a potato blight. <laughs> the Irish during this time were desperate to escape the famine and came to America looking for new opportunities but it would only find hardships waiting for them. The Irish often had no money when they came to America, so they settled in the first cities that they landed in. Landed in? That New they York. came to? Yes, New York City, Philadelphia, and Baltimore, by 1950, made up a quarter of their population. 1850, not 1950. Thank you for catching me on that. Yeah, because I didn't think we were into the 1950s. No, not yet. That, that, that. But, I mean, yeah. Irish, 
they're, they're everywhere at this point. They crowded into homes, living in tiny cramped spaces, and lack of sewage and running water made diseases spread, such as typhoid fever. In an Irish family... Sorry. You okay there? <laughs> if an <laughs> Irish... Don't make fun of me. If an Irish family moved in, their neighbors would quickly move out. And the Irish were thought to be dirty and diseased, which I might mean, come in later on just to let you guys know. But I, just keep that in mind, you know? They're thought to be dirty and diseased when really they're not. It's just sort of like a prejudice. I know there was a lot of prejudice yes. to the Irish when they first came. Yes. And it was hard for them to find jobs. There were signs that, like, Irish need not apply. Well, things I like that. check that off the list. <laughs> but you're doing good. You're doing great. You're making this easier for me. I'm helping! It should also be noted that there was a huge increase of typhoid fever cases in New York City in 1847 that was associated with a mass influx of immigrants from Ireland. Don't well, you yeah, like my special you imagine word? A influx? Influx, yes. <laughs> can you imagine a million people just showing up? Just show up. So, of course, in a city that's already crowded and then they're moving to the poorest, of course there's going to be outbreaks of disease. Irish often suffer job discrimination. Check, you already talked about that. <laughs> Negative. Well, they got jobs... Because nobody else would want them. They worked as coal miners, built railroads and canals. The women took maid work or low-paying jobs. Negative feelings towards the Irish were often made worse by disagreements about religion. You know, the age-old, maybe not so much the age-old fight between... At least the five, six-hundred-year-old Yeah, Protestants fight. and Catholics. Because mm -hmm. most of America were Protestant because back then a lot of Protestants Puritans. Yeah, a lot of Protestants had to escape Europe and come to America to see religious freedom. And so now you have an influx of Irish people who are Catholic, Roman Catholic, which are the very people who kicked them out to begin with. So yeah, there's major discrimination going on. But luckily, through their sheer number and determination, they would turn the unpopular opinion of the Irish immigrant into a positive example of an American citizen. By the time that Mary came through, and the popular opinion of the Irish have changed, but that doesn't mean that there aren't discriminations. You know, I mean, that's only like 50-something years before, and people were already thinking Irish were dirty. They were diseased, you know. They were these horrible people who came and just invaded their homeland or their country. <laughs> okay, back in Ireland, the potato blight returned in 1879. Something they called the mini famine. Because, so it wasn't as bad. Right. It basically, it caused hunger rather than mass death. Oh, well, that's good. It's better to be hungry than dead. But Mary would have been 10 years of old. 10 years of old? 10, ten years, years age. Wait. Ten. 10 years old. There's no oven there. <laughs> she would have been 10 she was during this time. So she probably felt hunger. She probably saw the panic of the citizens who thought that it would get worse. And 
I think this is probably the part of her life where she maybe put such an emphasis on food. I wrote, she would probably come to value food as the most important substance a human can possess because I was trying to be, you know, dramatic. <laughs> Ooh, dramatic. Although the famine was of a smaller scale, it caused widespread panic among Irish people. Many of the adults had experienced the Great Famine of 1845 through 1852 as children, and they were terrified that their families faced a repeat of the widespread death. Once again, there was a rise of immigration, so much so that it became a rite of passage among the youth. Perhaps this is why Mary would leave Ireland. We don't know. We don't know too much about Mary's youth, um, there's very little that she talked about. She was a very private person. But we do know that she was born September 23rd, 1869 in Cookstown, Ireland. Oh, that's ironic. I know. <laughs> Cookstown, Ireland. Because um, she's going to be a cook later on. Yeah. And her name, her full name was Mary Mallon, not Mary Typhoid. She would gain that name later. <laughs> Well, yeah, you know. And there was a possibility that she was born with typhoid because maybe her mother was infected during pregnancy. You know how COVID right now, we're hearing some of the parents, the moms. There have been babies born with it. Yeah, they had COVID, gave birth, and now their babies are born with it. So, I mean, we could Not have... Not to alarm anyone. Yeah, we could have our next COVID Karen out there. Wait, 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 wait. COVID Kelly out there. COVID Cody out there. I don't know. We know that she, like many other immigrants, came to America, or rather she came to New York City, but she was only 15 years old when she came. Wow. Of course, they didn't really have, like, the idea of, like, being a teenager wasn't really... Time. It wasn't really a thing. That kind of actually more developed in, like, the 1950s. Like, yeah. That concept. But she up until like, then, you were just... She had, like, an eighth grade education, and then and that like, was pretty... a lot of people did back then. Damn, she had an eighth grade education? Girl was educated. Well, from what I could tell, she did... She possibly did schooling or did homeschooled, but she was very smart. She knew how to read and write and crochet, and I don't know if she knew how to cook before she came here. But she was a bit of a perfectionist when it came to cooking. I mean, she's young. She's able-bodied. She can send money back home to her parents yeah. if they're still alive. So she <laughs> came to New York around 1884. We're not actually sure the date, or at least I couldn't find the date. And she lived with her aunt and uncle for a short time and worked as a maid. But unfortunately, her aunt and uncle would die and she would be alone trying to make a life for herself in the big city. I don't actually know her how her aunt and uncle died. It's not really recorded or written anywhere as to how it died. I just thought it was kind of interesting, you know, that she comes into New York and then shortly after her. Maybe they died of typhoid. See, that's what I was thinking. But I don't want to say it if it's not true. Could they have been her first victim? <laughs> See, I don't know. I'm sorry. Our story actually starts in August of 1906, and it's not with Mary. Our story starts with Charles Henry Warren, 
a healthy high society, society, society banker. The heck that. <laughs> He's a banker for the, for the wealthy. In New York City, he was president of the Lincoln Bank in Manhattan and a personal banker to the Vanderbilt family. Ooh, those were big names back in the day, the Vanderbilts. I have no idea, so I'm assuming they oh, were. They were really big. <laughs> really big. Maybe we'll do the They do episode. actually still exist. Do they? Yeah, the Vanderbilts. Yeah. Or off Shout out to the Vanderbilt family. <laughs> In the summer months, many of the wealthy would escape the New York heat of the city for a popular vacation spot known as Oyster Bay. During the summer of 1906, the Warren family rented a large colonial yellow house with a white wraparound porch from George Thompson and his wife. It was one of three properties that they owned at Oyster Bay and Thompson family, the Thompson family, spent their summers in the Catskills, which is a mountain known as the Catskills Mountain. I had to look it up because when I was in the car and I was like, hey, Missy, what are the Catskills? You said sleeping and eating. So she was of no help. So the Warren family moved into the house, bringing Mr. and Mrs. Wharton, Warden, not Wharton, four kids and their five servants and a new cook. Miss Warren bum, bum, had bum. <laughs> Miss Warren had just fired her previous cook, and really, if she had it, this whole thing would have just been right. Like, it would have right. been over. Like if she had just waited until you know what you you can work the rest of the summer. <laughs> And then, like, it's fine. It's fine. Just work the rest of the summer. And then, you know, you'll have to find new work once we get back home. (laughs) But she fired her cook. She contacted a temp agency known as Mrs. Stricker's Service Agency. And Mary sounds lovely. She does sound lovely. And Mary Mallon came highly recommended with references from well-respected and wealthy families. So, of course, Mrs. Mallon hired her on the spot. Oh, this isn't going to end well. (laughs) She had a reputation of being a hard worker, quiet, kept to herself. She did not like gossip, never sick, and an excellent cook. Everybody always said she made the best food. She was a perfectionist. She always had a pristine kitchen. Everything was clean. Well, that makes sense. Because if cooking is her livelihood and that's she wants to be really good at it because the better I am at it the more likely people are to give me really high praise yes you know okay I worked as a cook at a restaurant for a while and I tell you you take a certain level of pride in presenting this plate because it's going to go to people and it's like an artwork exactly and she was very proud of her work as a chef or as a cook or whatever you want to call her. Because presentation's important. Yeah, but she collect she collected. She cooked. She cooked. <laughs> she collecting cooked. <laughs> she cooked delicious roasts, stews, cakes, and puddings. But she was very proud of her ice cream. That year, hey, that's not easy to make. I know, you and have they to, didn't like, even hand turn that back. Then. And you didn't even really. You have to like eat it quickly because you know you have like they an had ice, ice box. boxes. Yeah, but I mean, it wouldn't keep for long. Yeah, that year, blah blah, I blah 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 blah. Sorry, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that year the orchard on Oyster 
buffet grew peaches that were the best seen in years, and the farmer was so proud of them. Mary managed to get her hands on a few of them for the Warren family and the servants as a special summer treat. Ooh, the peaches. You know, peaches are really good. It's like a summertime. Like, you just take a bite into a peach and the juice just runs down your chin. And that just imagine just... her cutting those peaches up with her own hands and putting it and churning it into the ice cream. Oh, my gosh, my mouth is watering. You know? Yeah, I, that would be so Knowing good. what I know about her and typhoid, I'm not entirely sure. Well, unfortunately, her downfall was, in fact... The ice cream. I really want a milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> Around August 27th, their nine-year-old daughter, Margaret Warren. So this is how long after she's come to work for them? About three weeks. Oh. Yeah. So not even all that long. Let's see. She was, I don't know, I just wrote the summer. No, August. Uh, so sometime early August, three weeks early. But oh. their nine-year-old daughter, Margaret Warren, became lethargic. Oh, that's ironic. The date. Because that's the same day that coincides with my episode. Oh, does it? Yeah, that's the day they go missing. Okay, August 27th is a bad day then. <laughs> The nine-year-old daughter, Margaret Warren, became lethargic and weak. Then stomach pain started combined with a headache and high fever. Now, Mrs. Warren wasn't too worried about it. She honestly thought it was like a little bit of a summer bug. Just like I mean, it's kid. Kids get sick. Yeah, exactly. The days would pass and she got worse with bouts of diarrhea and a rash on her abdominum. Abdomen. Abdomen. Abdomen, that's the word. She became del delirious. <laughs> okay, look what I wrote. Where is it? <laughs> she became delicious. Oh, wow, not delicious. No. Okay, she became delirious. So, not delicious. <laughs> not delicious. <laughs> and so the Warrens finally called a doctor. While the doctor was on his way there, Mary Mallon, in the days to come, would roll up her sleeves and actually jump in there to help tend to the sick and the ill. When the doctor finally got there... Well, that's the least she can do. Yeah. <laughs> the doctor <laughs> diagnosed Margaret with typhoid fever. Now, this was unheard of among the rich, among the 1%. They didn't have it. Because they had their own wells, their own water sources. And, this and was, if they're rich enough, they probably had, at least in some, indoor plumbing was a thing by then. Typhoid is caused by a bacterium known as Salmonella typhi, which grows in the intestines. It is very contagious, and a vaccine would not be discovered until 1911. I cannot stress this enough. There was not a vaccine. It could often be deadly. Wear a mask. <laughs> it could often be... Wash your hands. It could often be deadly. <laughs> One in five people would die of it, and there was no cure, no way to stop it. So this was not the diagnosis the Warrens wanted, and the Warrens were baffled. We'll just say the Warrens were baffled. Were the Warrens baffled? <laughs> Unfortunately. I think they perhaps they might have been a bit perplexed. This this episode is weird, but okay. <laughs> well, Unfortunately, we'll clean it up in editing. It's fine. Unfortunately, within the following week, five other members of the household would develop similar symptoms, including two maids, Mrs. Warren, the gardener, and another one of the Warrens' daughters. 
Mr. and Mrs. Warren believed that the house was contaminated, so they sent their two sons, their healthy sons, to New Jersey with family. That makes sense. And friends. quarantine the sons away from, yeah. from the And the rest of the family, they left. They were like, bye, and they ran to their Manhattan townhouse. Now... Fortunately, despite the... Sin- that had to have been an awful trip back to Manhattan. It must have been. I, I mean, mean... Their bowels are like... <laughs> I mean, you have diarrhea going on. That yeah. is just... Despite the severity of illness and its prolonged nature, all eventually would recover. So they all got sick, but nobody would die. Well, that's good. That's something, at least. The only people who wouldn't leave... With the Warrens was the gardener who actually worked for the Thompsons and Mary Mellon. Mary Mellon. She's now, probably like, oh, I, nope, have, nope, I can't do this. Nope. I, yeah. I'm out. <laughs> I cannot say for certain why she didn't leave with the family, but at this point, I, I honestly don't think she knew what she was doing. I don't think she knew it was her. Asymptomatic carriers at the time were very unheard of, especially in America. And honestly, I think she was just afraid of getting sick. I mean, it makes total sense. Yeah. So the Thompsons arrived back from the Catskills in September. And they're probably like, la, 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 we've had this wonderful vacation. And they come home to, your house is contaminated with typhoid. Burn it to the ground. Yes. I'm overly dramatic. <laughs> See, now I can't. <laughs> to find the home, Warrens had rented abandoned and overgrown since the gardener was sick and could not tend to his duties. So it basically looked like an abandoned house. Or a haunted house. Meanwhile, the poor gardener's over there in the gardener's shack being like, oh, God, I feel like shit. The event actually made headline news in the New York Times. Oh, no. That's not going to help publicity for their houses, no, is it? Gossip and news articles were blaming the house, saying that the water had been contaminated. And the Thompsons... Poor Thompsons grew concerned with the bad publicity, worrying that it would be impossible to rent. This was a house they rented every year, you know, to the rich people. Can you imagine, can you imagine, like, like in today's day and age, like, you rent out your house as, like, an Airbnb mm-hmm. or something, and, like, you, you kind of go off on vacation somewhere else or something, and then you come back and you find out that your Airbnb has just been, like, condemned as being like this <laughs> man it, it was not like and that is possible. like a huge chunk of your income yeah so safe to say the town condemned they would often condemn and even burn houses down that had these outbreaks oh man and this is a colonial house mm-hmm. which means this, this thing has probably been around since like before america yeah they needed to move quickly and get this straightened out. Basically, they needed to do damage control and find someone else to blame. Look, I don't know what you think you've heard, but it is not my house. <laughs> so and I am going to prove it. They did the only logical thing they could think to do. They called the public health department to come and investigate their home. So health officials showed up because of what they knew of typhoid. They suspected the water supply immediately. I they, mean, that... That's a, it's a logical. It is a logical conclusion. because I mean, 
what they know is contaminated water that you could wind up getting drinking or, you know, a sewage leak or something links to it, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, we can fix that, right? Yeah. So they poured Florazine into the upstairs toilet where the Warren family- Flora what? Florazine. Into the upstairs toilet where the family used the bathroom the most. And now Florazine is an orange dye that they use as an indicator to let you know whether or not it's leaked into. They would turn on all the faucets and if they saw orange dye, that would prove that the toilet plumbing had leaked into the drinking water. What did I tell you about indoor plumbing? Exactly. They were rich people. They had indoor plumbing and indoor toilets. But the water came up clear, so they tested the cesspools under the house. Which is basically kind of like a septic tank type thing, I think. They tested the well, the outdoor toilets used by the servants, the kitchen, the bathroom faucets, but all their tests came up negative for the pathogen. Because indoor plumbing is only for the 1%. The rest of you gotta go out to the outhouse. Exactly. They checked all the food sources. The delivery men, the orchard, the dairy farm, the butcher. Anyone the family may have come into contact with, like guests, and any food sources that they came into contact with. But all the food tests came up negative, and no one in Oyster Bay got sick. So then, whatever it was, it was something within that house, but it was not the water. Hmm, I wonder what it could have been. <laughs> well, we know today, but they were still right, right, right. Out. They're like because a definite source could not be located, and the Warrens were improving at home. The health department wrote the incident off as a fluke, and close the case. You know, okay, to be fair, the kid could have gone somewhere and played on some water or something that was contaminated, maybe brought back something. It seems unlikely, but I mean, if it had just been the one child, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the different servants, the gardener, every the, the, the mom, another sibling getting sick. No, it's not just a (laughs) random kid playing in a dirty pool. Now, when the health department wrote the incident off as a fluke, the Thompsons hated this. It did not sit well with them, and it didn't stop the rumors or save their house's reputation. Well, yeah, can you imagine? This is part of their livelihood. And suddenly it's like, well, we can't find out why these people got sick. And then they're like, well... No, nobody's going to want to stay in this house. This The townspeople wouldn't step anywhere near the house, and they avoided the Thompsons like they had the plague. Like, they were infectious. Because who knows, maybe they were asymptomatic, asymptomatic, asymptomatic characters. Asymptomatic carriers. As well. Yeah. In a last-ditch effort to save their reputation, they reached out to a specialist, Dr. George Soper, who, by the way, is, like, my favorite person person ever in the story i mean the man does not give up you know you gotta it you gotta appreciate a guy who has tenacity and doesn't give up dr george soper was a sanitary engineer who had a talent for finding the root of a contagion he considered himself an epidemic fighter he was he was a hero he he would love today (laughs) he was known to use extreme measures in the past such as evicting typhoid patients from their homes and burning it down to prevent the spread of outbreak so like these people would be sick and homeless at the same time (laughs) okay well that's a bit extreme He, he was a little bit extreme 
But he was very passionate about his job. That shit wouldn't fly today. No. His job as a sanitary engineer, which was created by the government, was to reduce the impact of disease in the population. Sanitary engineers helped create sewer systems and water systems that would help keep their water safe. Due to these safety measures, typhoid outbreaks had been reduced by 67%. It is interesting to think that by taking certain safety measures that you can reduce the initial outbreak that drastically. Just by separating their water and their waste. Like, seriously, people. Wear a mask and wash your hands. <laughs> if that is all your sanitary engineers are telling you to do, do it. 67% is so good. Still, typhoid fever <laughs> Typhoid fever was very common during this time, especially in the poorer parts of New York, and it was very contagious and hard to beat. Again, there was no vaccine. Around and, this time, New York had around 3,467 cases, resulting in 639 deaths. Nowhere, nowhere near COVID today. No, no, it's not. And remember, there is no vaccine. There is no vaccine. <laughs> cannot express we that have surpassed 20 million cases worldwide and five million of those i believe are in the united states in covid cases and that's in like four months yes again there was no vaccine and that would not be found five more years R russia claims that they have a vaccine of covid not typhoid yeah of covid not typhoid. <laughs> so sober though it wasn't a major outbreak like he'd been used to he was lured in by the mystery remember it made the headlines the new york times headlines it read five ill in one household where the journalist blamed the water supply for the outbreak but stoper knew that this was not true because he had the health department's reports that contradicted the news article. So the news is wrong in this. It basically, it was a mystery and, for a and challenge. he wanted a challenge. George, I feel like this guy and Sherlock Holmes would have gotten along. You, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> George Soper arrived on Oyster Bay and he immediately got to work looking at places that no one would think to look. He looked into the history of the house which he discovered there was one case 13 years prior. With the amount of people who rented the house, came and went, that was a significantly low and number. They might, and, and in 13 years, they may have upgraded the house with the indoor plumbing. And, I mean, with the amount of typhoid going around, it would be near impossible that at least one house wouldn't have at least one case. It could have been a servant, for all we know. He didn't actually tell us or write down in any like way who it was. what the case was. So he turned towards the Warren family's habits. He learned that the Warrens loved seafood, especially shellfish. In Oyster Bay that summer, there was an old woman who sold clams from a tent on a beach, you know, real hygienic. You gotta make a living how you're gonna make a living. And since fish come from water, he wondered if the older woman may have gotten her clams from a contaminated water source. I mean, I suppose that could make sense. Or the woman wasn't very clean. Yeah, that's true. And 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 then you know she's like, here, my poopy hands are handing you your clams. Yes, I have some sources that say George found her and accosted her, and other sources that say 
she had already packed up and left and moved on. Now, George himself says she's packed up and left, but other people say he accosted her. But either way, he managed to find out where she had collected her clams and found that some of the areas were actually polluted. Case closed, right? No. No, there was just one problem. The wardens were not the only ones who bought warrens. Were not the only ones who bought clams from this woman, and none of the other people got sick. So, like, basically, you know, the water source didn't do it. It's not the clams. It's not all the other sources because nobody else in Oyster Bay is getting sick. Exactly. Additionally, after doing further investigation, he realized that the last time the Warrens ate clams was July 15th, but Margaret wouldn't get sick until August 27th, over a month later. So that's, that's the, not an incubation period. The incubation period for typhoid fever was only 10 to 14 days. So and that was over kind of like COVID, where it's like, you, you can... Yeah. There are a lot of similarities between what we know of COVID and what they knew of typhoid. Okay. Yeah. He turned to another theory that the disease had to have been carried in by someone. If that were the case, something in their lifestyle had to have changed. He got his answer when he went to the city to speak to the Warrens. Oh, yes. I fired my cook and I hired a new one. The Warrens claimed <laughs> that everyone had been together the whole summer. No family member or staff had left the house and then returned, except the cook. Stoker wrote in the military surgeon in 1919, it was found that the family had changed cooks on August 4th, about three weeks before the epidemic broke out. Little was known about the new cook's history. She had been engaged at an employment bureau, which gave her a good recommendation. She remained in the family only a short time, leaving about three weeks after the outbreak of typhoid occurred. Her present whereabouts were unknown. The cook was described as an Irish woman about 40 years of age, intelligent, tall, heavy, single, non-communicative. She seemed to be in perfect health. She was not known ever to have had an attack of typhoid. Here was by all means the most important clue which had come to my notice. If this woman could be found in question, it seemed likely that she could give facts from which the cause of the epidemic could be ascertained. Okay, I would hardly call it an epidemic, dude. I mean, it was just five cases. <laughs> no, it's right. hardly an epidemic. I mean, it's hardly a footnote. So he pressed the Warrens to tell him what kind of food she prepared. It seemed that if everything was cooked over a stove, then the virus would have been killed off by the heat. But then they told him about the ice cream, the cold, uncooked ice cream, and the peaches that were cut up by Mary's own hands. Could have been the very clue the stoker had been looking for. He believed Mary had been in the middle of preparing ice cream when she stopped to use the bathroom and either forgot to wash her hands or didn't wash them thoroughly enough. Should have deep fried the ice cream. Now, I will say that if you have this virus and it's constantly on you, sometimes washing your hands thoroughly enough, you have to get under your fingernails. You know that, right? Get under your fingernails, people. <laughs> yeah, keep your fingernails clean. Yeah. So, he began... Wash his... your hands. 
So he began his search for the cook. All he knew was the temp agency and her name. So he started with Mrs. Strickers. The temp agency was able to get Mary's past work history with the agency. Now, this is possibly not her full work history as she could have worked for other temp agencies in the city, gotten jobs by word of mouth. Plus, she'd also been known to be poached from one job to another she would they poached the cook poached as in they other they people stole her, steal her not, yeah, but, yeah, but it's just, it's not like, an egg beautiful wording <laughs> they poached the cook from the other family she beautiful would wording. she would be poached by other influential families that would come over to where she was working they would like her food and go hey come work for us i'll pay you more so of course she said yes duh i mean you know if you're gonna get paid it's like yes i feel that i really like this job this family's so good to me oh you're gonna pay me how much more extra bye <laughs> i mean hello the owner of the agency gave dr soper a list of names while it wasn't a complete list it was a start and he traveled around the city to each home and interviewed each household oh she was just such a wonderful woman she just kept to herself she was polite she made delicious food all i have to say is how much is this family paying him because he went around to each family he are they play even with? paying him at I, this don't, point? I don't know Anyway, so Dr. Stoper wrote in the bulletin in 1939, I found some of the places where Mary Mellon had worked and asked if anything unusual had happened there. I would like to describe at length what I learned, but it would take too long. I uncovered a series of seven household epidemics. They were alike in the unexpectedness with which the cases occurred, the complete ignorance of the source, the apprehension as to who would be next, the suffering of the patients, the disruption of the household arrangements, the general bewilderment. The cook, of course, had never been suspected as the case of any of these epidemics. That makes sense. I mean, why would you suspect the cook? You're going to suspect the chambermaid. <laughs> now they're the ones emptying the uh, chamber pots. Oh, yes. Wait. Now Dr. Stoper knew that such a thing as health carriers, what we would call asymptomatic today, was a possibility as he followed the findings of a Dr. Robert Koch, where Koch published a paper on the discovery of healthy carriers in Europe in 1902, and he actually got a Nobel Peace Prize. Okay, so this is only about four years. Yes. So they've only known about the concept of a healthy carrier someone who shows no symptoms but has the disease yes it's actually like five years because it's 1907 oh it's 1907 no, i'm sorry i thought it was still 1907. he found out in 1902 okay so yeah five years yeah. in europe uh, he published a paper on the discovery of health carriers in Europe in 1902 and actually got a Nobel Peace Prize for his discovery in 1905, but it was practically unheard of in America. And Soper thought he had hit the jackpot. He oh, was God. Okay. So uh, let me, let me, so I can see this guy thinking, okay, so here we have this woman, I'm going to get my own Nobel Prize. He was going to be the first to discover a healthy carrier in America. I mean, he, he was pumped. I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be like this other guy. 
I'm going to get a Nobel Peace Prize. Safe to say he was determined to find her. Did he ever get a Nobel Peace Prize? You know, I did not look that up, so (laughs) I have no idea. But it seemed that none of the households he'd interviewed knew much about her. Remember, she kept to herself. They always sang her praises. They said she was quiet, a hard worker. She kept her kitchen in good condition. Excellent cook. I mean, everybody said the same thing about her. Uh, One of the households, J. Coleman Drayton, a healthy New York City attorney, would even express great gratitude of Mary Mullen, telling the story of when the entire house would come down with typhoid, except for him and their cook, Mary. He had actually built an immunity to the disease, having had it years earlier in the military. But Mary had told him she had never had the disease, and he was surprised and grateful when Mary once again rolled up her sleeves and began helping to care for the sick without any worry of her own well-being. He even paid her an extra $50 for trouble. Now, so wait, so but I, I think I remember you saying somewhere in your research that at one point, like, her wages could be, like, 40 to $45 a month. I don't remember, but that could be you, right. You, you said, uh, yeah. you, you look something up, or, or maybe... It, it was a lot. Time. She got so, paid a lot. So that's basically, like, she being she paid an extra month's wages. Yeah. So, and but, I couldn't okay. find anything on whether or not he got a Nobel Prize. I have no not. idea. But in my mind, Mary did this twice that we know of. And once here with the Drayton family and later again with the Warren family where she would roll her sleeves up and help the family members. But did the Warrens give her extra money? Whereas I'm not actually sure if the Warrens did pay extra, um, it does raise a question of motive for me that if Mary did this with all the families she worked for and she purposely got people sick, if she somehow knew she was the cause. I mean, I mean, you would have to think cause and effect of, I come to work for these people and suddenly they're all getting typhoid. Like the first time it's like, okay, it's a fluke. But the second and the third and how many was it? Seven or eight families? Mm-hmm. That have gotten typhoid. This would have been her seventh family that we know of. That we know of. So then you would have to think either you have the worst possible luck. And it's just like typhoid follows me around and I don't know why. I mean, I don't imagine that she really knew. Yeah, but is it possible that she was doing it for a pay raise and then moving on to another house after she got paid, after she got her money? Like, could okay. she be infecting these families on purpose? That would put a very sinister twist on that. Yes. That would be like almost like a person who poisons their family members and kills them with arsenic for um like insurance money for like yes. a payout like there's a financial motive we're not saying that there is but that is a very interesting twist yeah i don't actually think this is a true motive i don't but i think it is interesting to like consider okay being a single woman and an immigrant in 1900s new york was hard yes. so yeah you get extra money where you can get extra money So, life is hard. Anyways, it would be four months before he managed to track her down. Oh, this is my favorite part. And I'm going to let him tell you their very first meeting. Remember, she has no idea anyone is looking for her. No idea she's about to be accused of potentially infecting six, now seven households 
with typhoid. She's just going about her day, doing her job, and then all of a sudden this guy's just all like, hey. Okay, so Stoker <laughs> wrote in the bulletin in 1939. Now, I, I reference this bulletin a lot, so just letting you know. When at length I caught up with her, which was some four months after I started out on the Oyster Bay epidemic, Mary was working as a cook in an old-fashioned high-stooped house on Park Avenue on the west side, two doors above the church at 16th Street. The laundress had recently been taken to the Presbyterian Hospital with typhoid fever, and the only child of the family, a lovely daughter, was dying of it. Now, this would actually be her very first victim that we know of. The first death? The first death that we know of. I mean, okay. they're all victims, but her first Yeah, death. it's the first one to die. I had my first talk with Mary in the kitchen of this house. I suppose it was an unusual kind of interview, particularly when the place is taken into consideration. I was as diplomatic as possible, but I had to say I suspected her of making people sick, that I wanted specimens of her urine, feces, and blood. So let me get this straight. This, this random guy just walks up to you and goes, hey, I think you're making people sick. I want your blood. Your pee and your urine. How about it? Urine and pee are the same thing. Oh, I want your blood, your poop, and your urine. There you go. He goes on to say, it did not take Mary long to react to the suggestion. Gee, and this I is my this. favorite part. I love this so much. She seized a carving fork and advanced in my direction. I passed rapidly down the long, narrow hall, through the tall iron gate, out through the area... So to the sidewalk, I felt rather lucky to have escaped. I confessed to myself that I had made a bad start. Apparently, Mary did not understand that I wanted to help her. It mattered not that I told her if she would answer my questions and give me the specimens, I would see that she got medical attention in case that was called for and without any cost to her. I don't know you from the Virgin Mary. What do you think I'm going to go giving you around my specimen? Get out of here. She attacked him with a carving fork. <laughs> I love this so much. Get out of here. I ain't going to give you nothing. So here was a man. Sorry for the bad Irish accent, guys. <laughs> so here was a man Mary had never met before saying a lot of strange medical words that she did not understand. I mean, okay, and trying she... to get her urine and her feces for testing. I do not applaud this man's tact. It okay. was horrible. I mean, okay, think about it. You're just doing your job. And all of a sudden this guy comes in and starts mansplaining things to you. He was essentially telling her, you're dirty. You don't wash your hands. I want you to get tested to prove I'm right. Because and she's like, I'm not even sick. I've never been sick a day in my life. Not from typhoid anyway. And even if it <laughs> did come out positive, the asymptomatic, if, if healthy carriers were such an unknown thing, a poor Irish immigrant is really not going to have any concept. Exactly. Of this. At all. This guy is an idiot. Because your <laughs> career means little to me and your livelihood means little to me when I can get a book deal. <laughs> no, oh my gosh, yes. Because, dude, okay, look, 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 look. Just work with me here, okay? Let me study you and I'll get a Nobel Prize. <laughs> what do I get out of it? 
You get a bungalow and a dog. If it came out that Mary was making people sick with typhoid, then she would never work again. They burn houses down, shun people for these diseases. Imagine what they do would do to her if the public found out. And it was only a matter of time since New York Times had already covered the incident at Oyster Bay. And isn't the cook, like, kind of, as far as servants go, High the top of the food yes, chain? Yes, yes. I mean, like... She's she's already like what at this point she's like in her mid thirties to forties. She's she's in her mid thirties. Like that's not a spring chicken in the nineteen hundreds. She's like thirty seven, I think. Okay, in that time and with the health and things that she's not old, but she's not young by their day standards. Exactly. And I mean, she's obviously at this point been in this country about twenty or so years, give or take. Yep. And she's worked her way up. There's a certain level of pride in that. Exactly. But then on the other hand, Dr. Stoper isn't some stranger off the street here. He's a medical professional who is investigating a current outbreak for the household Mary is currently working for. His job is to find where the typhoid is coming from, and he's asking her for samples. So, of course, the natural reaction one has is to attack him with a But did anybody tell her that this guy wanted to talk to her. That's what I want to know. Because I mean, he wasn't in the house for no reason. And he's a medical... He could have been like, hey, I'm a medical professional. My job is to find typhoid. I'm going to need samples. Now, but the question is, was he taking samples from other people, or did he just zero in on her? Either way, I think attacking him with a fork is a little extreme. It's a bit metal, but it is, <laughs> it is extreme. So, safe to say, both parties here did acted... Did not react well. They acted bad. But bad for First introduction. Stouffer would not give up. He was going to make sure she saw the predicament she was in, if his theory was correct. And he would come back, only this time with Becca, a former assistant named Dr. Bert Hobbler. Hobbler? Hubler. Hubler? I think it's Hubler. I love that name. Either way, Hobbler or Hubler. Either way, that is a fantastic name. Hello, I am Dr. Hubler. <laughs> Sofer requested the help of a friend of Mary's, August Breihoff. Now, we're going to hear from August Breihoff a couple more times. He was a 51-year-old retired police officer, so he was much older than Mary. She's 37, he's 51. But Mary spent her nights with him. So, speculation that he could have been a lover? There is speculation. But um, nothing, like, official. No, nothing official. But she often bring him dinner, um after work. Of course, some speculate the relationship, while others say Mary just took pity on him and even paid the rent on his dirty, cluttered room. But whatever <laughs> the relationship, this much is known, Bryhoff was one of Mary's only friends. Okay, so that can have a So she didn't have a lot of people in her life. No. She basically had Bryhoff. That's so sad. And that is it. And Bryhoff didn't have any other friends either. Mary was his only so friend. So whatever their relationship was, be it a romantic relationship or just a deep friendship, they were kind of all each other had. Yes. Now... So. Bryhoff allowed, uh, he helped Stoper. He allowed Stoper and his friend to hang out at his place until Mary came that night. Ah. Uh, and, um, Dr. Well, I mean, okay, so I can imagine Dr. Stoper probably explained the situation to him, and it's like, hey, we, we, we want to help Mary. And I think, I think he did. Yes. You know, um, 
I think his intentions were good. Yes. But his execution. <laughs> but when Mary came up the stairs and she saw them, she was not the least bit happy to see them. Oh, I imagine not. And again, Stobler wrote in the bulletin. But she doesn't have any um, kitchen utensils this time, does she? No, she, she's literally walking home. Oh, good. Or walking to his house. But Stobler wrote in the bulletin in 1939, Mary was angry at the unexpected sight of me. I just love the way he writes. Although I recite some well-considered speeches committed to memory, so he thought about it before he talked to He's her. He's like, I gotta figure out what I'm gonna say to this In woman because advance. I did not want to be stabbed again. <laughs> not that she actually physically stabbed him. No, she just tried to. You know, it's fine. I'm gonna stop interrupting you so no, you can actually fine. get through this. Some well-considered speeches committed to memory in advance to make sure she would understand what I meant and that I meant her no harm. I could do nothing with her. She decided she knew anything about typhoid. She had never had it, nor produced it. That there had been no more typhoid where she was than anywhere else. There was typhoid fever everywhere. Nobody had ever accused her of causing any cases or had any occasion to do so. So a thing had never been heard of. She was in perfect health and there was no sign of symptoms of any disease about her. She would not allow anybody to accuse her. Again, I say I was making no headway, so Dr. Hubler and I left, followed by a volley of implications, imprecations from the head of the stairs. Now I had to look up imprecations because I didn't know what it meant. She cursed them okay. at the top of the stairs. She is of the lower class. So even if she's working in an upper class environment, it does stand to reason to her from her upbringing, from the way she has lived, from the people associated in her neighborhood, that typhoid is just something that's there something that's around she may not even necessarily know a hundred percent it's just something that happens she grew up in a place that had famine and disease and nobody questioned where I imagine the disease it's how we from. think about the flu right it's the just flu it's something is that something that you get i mean you can go somewhere and you get a you you touch something you get a flu germ and next thing you know you have the flu it's just yeah. she's not thinking it's me so stoper and his friend left. They they really had no Hoobler. other choice. Hoobler. And Stoper learned that Mary would soon be leaving the Bowen household. And he worried that if she left, Mary would be much harder to track down. It already took him four oh, months. No, this is not going to go well. So he had to act quickly. He brought her case to the Commissioner Thomas Darlington's and Dr. Herman M. Biggs at the Office of New York City Health Department and recommended that Mary Mallon be taken into custody. Stoker said, I called Mary a living culture too, a chronic typhoid germ producer. I said she That's was a, a little harsh. I know, right? I said she was a proven menace to the community and it was impossible to deal with her. In a reasonable and peaceful way. If the department meant to examine her, it must be prepared to use force and plenty of it. Well, to be fair, I, I mean, I'm not I saying think at this point, Soper was angry. Probably, you know. Okay, it's 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 1900s, and like women were quiet and demure, and they didn't. She was not act acting. Like that. No. no, and you know, 
And the department actually agreed to this recommendation, stating that they would go about this in a peaceful way, but if that was not possible, they had no problem taking what they wanted by force. <sighs> Enter Dr. S. Josephine Baker, who is like a big deal as far as medical history uh, goes. She was like one of the first doctors. Yeah. Female doctors, right? Yes. Um, she was an American physician notable for making contributions to public health, especially in the immigrant communities of New York City. Her fight against the, and I'm reading this directly from Wikipedia, her fight against the damage that, that widespread urban poverty and ignorance caused to children, especially newborns, is perhaps her most lasting legacy. So she did a lot for newborns and mothers, how to keep your newborns alive. Okay, so she's a really important person. She is, but she handles this so very wrong. Ugh. Okay, so the department... I feel like everybody's handling this really wrong. They really are. The department thought that a womanly touch would be better suited to ease marrying to consenting to handing over samples of her urine, feces, and blood. So they sent in Dr. Josephine... Baker. Now that's a solid plan. Yeah. I mean, a woman might be able to appeal to a woman. Clearly the man hasn't. Unfortunately, they did not tell her of any of the past attempts to get this. Oh no. So they didn't even give her any fair warning. So she went in there blind? Yeah, she simply was told to get in there, get the patient samples. And upon asking Mary for the samples, Dr. Josephine Baker received a firm no, and so then that, a slammed door in her face. So basically, she's just like, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm Dr. Josephine I'm Baker. I'm with the health department. I'm with the health department, and we're, we're, I, need, I need samples of from you to, to test you for typhoid. And Mary no. was like, no, and slam. <laughs> no, close the door. And to which she called her superiors and informed them of Mary's answer. Like, what do you want me to do? I can't just take it forcefully. Oh my god. That's gosh. unheard of. That's just... This is gonna be bad before it gets better, and then it's just never gonna get better. But her superiors told her to return the next day. So, the next morning, Dr. Baker would return, this time with an ambulance. Yes, I know I say ambulance wrong. An ambulance. So, this time with an ambulance and three policemen. Now, I asked my mom. She said we all pronounce oh, it Oh, so it's ambulance. the whole family. Okay. Yeah. All, all, all on my mom's side. Mm. Ambulance. That's how you pronounce it. Ambulance. Ambulance. The, so, she arrived the next morning, this time with an ambulance and three policemen. And I'm going to let Stover talk about what happened because he writes it better than I do. The next morning, a health department ambulance drew up quietly in the 16th Street besides the church with three policemen under Dr. Baker's orders. Two of the policemen were carefully placed so as to prevent Mary from escaping, and one was taken by Dr. Baker with her to the front door. They rang the basement bell, and Mary opened the door before she saw who was there. Then she attempted to shut it, and the policeman chased her. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just seeing this in, like, an old silent film in my head. <laughs> So Mary ran back to the kitchen. She then suddenly disappeared. They chased after her and she was gone. 
nowhere to be seen. On looking out the rear window, Dr. Baker noticed a chair that had been uh, drawn up beside the high fence, which separated the property of the adjoining. So basically, she grabbed this chair, moved it up to the fence, and then climbed over the fence to get away. So everybody went over to the neighboring house to try and check to see if she was hiding among the neighboring house, and they couldn't find her anywhere. I'm seeing this all. very comically in my head. And so they came back to the original house. I guess it was the Bowen house. Because she hadn't left yet. And they asked the servants, have you seen her? And the servants are all like, no, no, I haven't seen her. And she calls her superiors and she's like, I don't know what you want me to I do. Lost her. She's gone. And they go, do not come home. Do not come back without Miss Mary Mallet. Do not fail in your mission. This is failure is not an option. So they looked for another two hours. Uh, I mean, if she jumped over a fence, she, she could be gone. Dr. Ba Baker then went out into the street and found another policeman, and the search was renewed. The hunt was about to be given up when a bit of blue fabric was seen caught in the door of an outside closet in the rear of the second house. Ash cans were piled against the door. When these were removed, there was Mary, so they found her. They, they had to, like, open a door. And there she was. Uh, and the only reason they found sure her. that her dress was literally. Yeah. The only reason they found her was because a little police officer saw a piece of cloth sticking uh, out. No. So guys, if you're hiding, make sure your hair and your clothes are like safely tucked in and not sticking out of the door. Seriously. But guys, don't give yourself reasons to have to hide from the police. Or, you know, well, I mean, it, you know what? That's also good advice for serial killers. Yeah. Like, if you're hiding, make sure that your clothes are not visible. Otherwise, or your hair. Or your hair or something, because, you know, you might just wind up dead. So, basically, it took four police officers, which they managed to find more police officers in their search, and Josephine Good Baker, Lord. to get this woman kicking and screaming into an ambulance. Was this woman She's hiking? Not going, she's not going willingly. Well, no, of course not. But I mean, they're literally kidnapping her from off of the street. Well, I guess if or adrenaline rushes in, I mean, I've I've heard stories of like adrenaline rushing in and like people lifting cars off of small children. So I suppose she can fight four grown men. She said. So Josephine Baker said she fought and struggled and cursed. I tried to explain to her that I only wanted the specimens then she could go back home she again refused and i told the policeman to pick her up and put her in the ambulance this we did and the ride down to the hospital was quite a wild one wow. it took four police officers just to get her into the ambulance and dr josephine baker had to literally sit on Mary Mallon's chest the entire ride to the hospital to prevent her from escaping. She said, it was like being in a cage with an angry lion. <laughs> well, I mean, she's got to be terrified at this point. Oh, she yeah. still doesn't really believe that she's the source. And anything. now she's been kidnapped. 
These people are manhandling her and shoving she doesn't her into know. an ambulance. She's she doesn't terrified. Know. For all they know, they could be taking her to the loony bin. And the 1900 loony bin was not a good place to be. What gets worse? Okay. Mary was admitted on March 20th, 1907 to Willard Park Hospital, the detention hospital of the health department, located on East 16th Street along the East River. It was a facility specifically designed to house patients with infectious diseases. It was also a teaching hospital where students would come and learn of infectious diseases and how to treat them. Mary was placed in an isolation ward, stripped of her clothes, and given Oh, they took her clothes? And given a white bathrobe. She was not allowed to make a phone call or contact anyone. She was not told how long she would be there or even what they planned to do with her. She was essentially trapped there, poked and prodded by students and doctors day and night. The New York American, a paper, published a piece on April 2nd claiming to have an informant on the Board of Health that headlined Human Typhoid Germ. Now, at this point, they had not published her name, only said that they there were millions of typhoid germs in her body, and that the doctors... But wait, they don't know that for sure, that there are millions of typhoid germs, because up until... They actually get her at the hospital. They haven't been able to test her. It is all just a theory. Yes. Millions of typhoid germs in her body, and the doctors were at a loss as what to do about it. The reporter also stated that she was a prisoner and that she was being closely guarded because of her constant attempts to escape. Now, it may have been a bit of an exaggeration, as I can't find any evidence that she made any attempts to escape once she was in their custody. Um, the reporter was probably referencing to her escape attempt prior to arriving at the hospital. But if you also think about news headlines yes. of the day, and even Today. But safe to say, he made it sound like she had this typhoid, like, like she fever, was just... super germ, and she was trying to escape the hospital so she could infect the city. She's just, she's like a Batman supervillain. I, typhoid Mary, and I'm going to infect the city. <laughs> so she has been brought to the hospital against her will. She's not given them consent at all to do anything that they are doing. And she's scared, unsure as to what's happening. I mean, it uh, she, it just must be horrifying for her. Both Josephine Baker and George Stoper would later go on to say if she would have cooperated, none of this would have happened and she would have gone on to live a normal and free life. Essentially, she did this to herself. If she had not so bluntly refused them, cursed at them, attacked them with kitchen utensils, or run and hid from them, then she could have continued her life, but Mary would not go on to live a life. It's kind of like victim blaming. If you had not done this, I would not have held you prisoner and attacked if, if you, you and taken if your you hadn't, if, if you hadn't worn that dress yes. that night, I wouldn't, yeah. Yes, that thing. Now, I find it interesting and a little psychological. I, I can't help but wonder what led her to have such a distrust of authority. 
I don't know if it was this moment right here of Dr. Stoper coming in and saying those things, because he clearly handled it wrong. And then they yeah. are literally harassing her and going after her, and now yeah. they have, like... But her very first interaction with him, with the fort, with was, the carving fort... Yeah, immediately. Was immediate. So it makes me wonder, did something happen? And I know you can't that's answer that, problem. because we, we don't, don't know. know. Yeah. So that's just an interesting little... Yeah, like, I, I often wondered what her past was like to make her immediately go, I'm going to attack this man with a carving fork, you know? And, I mean, she's unmarried. Exactly. So that also leads to, was it a distrust of men in general? It could have been. We don't know. Hi, so it's Micah from the future. I am editing, and I am realizing that this video is going to be way too long. So I think this is a good place for us to leave off. If you like it, go ahead and tell us about it. You can reach us on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, you can reach us on Twitter too. All right, so next time in part two, we will watch what happens to Mary after she's quarantined for three years. You guys thought our quarantine was bad. All right, so we'll be back with that later on. Look for part two. Bye.